0: and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to
1: work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
2: We were tasked with going down Main Street. We had these flyers. It was something about how we wanted to start new relations. And as we're handing them out, an IED explodes. Many of
1: the men and women who enlist in the armed forces do so knowing they may die. But somehow, meeting death face-to-face still comes as an absolute surprise. There is a distinct difference between something you know in your head and something you believe in your heart. So when the fighting starts, you lead with your heart. Because sometimes, the chasm between knowledge and belief is just too wide to cross.
2: The shrapnel went to my eye, went to both knees, it blew out my right knee, it blew out uh, my right bicep, it um, went through my left eye, Um, it blew up in my left thigh, so I could see my femur all the way down, Um, and shrapnel through my right hand and pinky, so it was just a bloody mess, um... And I remember the dock came over. I was kind of in and out of consciousness, pretty sure I was going to die. Pretty sure that was, this is the end. This is where my life ends here on, you know, the sands of Hoseba.:
1: Marines train for months to learn how to respond to chaos. And with each combat tour, they get a little bit better at it. They have better crisis reaction times and make better decisions under pressure. For his part, Kevin Rumley had excellent training, and he was making good decisions during the attack on his unit. He made them right up until an IED took him and the rest of his fire team out of the war. What is true bravery? What makes a hero a hero? Tested by the worries of what's happening at home, thousands of miles away, and the reality of what you're facing here and now when your life is in danger every second and it's either kill or be killed. From Wondery and Incongruity Media, this is Anthony Russo, and this is War. Back in the States, when he'd been part of the build up to the war in Iraq they told him that at least 5 members of his unit would not be coming home but he didn't believe them for him it was all part of a game no 20 year old marine believes they are going to die until it happens and when it does there is no amount of training that can compensate after all you never really believe you are going to die But when you are dying, you believe it.
2: It's something that I've actually have, um, like post-traumatic stress for me is literally reliving that singular moment of the explosion and the thought of death, the realization that this is the end, um, and there was, there was no peace, there was no um, kind of serenity. It was straight terror. But
1: how did we get here? Kevin wasn't born to terror. He was born to a nice middle-class family in northern Virginia. His dad was a cop, and Kevin didn't feel as if he'd been born to anything. He liked to play the drums, he was in a band. He ran track and field. He had what he describes as an idyllic life. But his idyllic life came to an end one afternoon, right in the middle of track and field practice.
2: My neighbor picked me up, said that I had to go to the hospital, and then when we show up at the hospital, that's when a social worker approached me guided me to a back room and kind of all, everything was told to me. It was just that shock. Like, what the, what do you mean? She was here this morning, you know, and I guess she passed away en route to the hospital.
1: Kevin's mother, Mary, had died of a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in her lung. He said that with her death, it was as if a veil had been lifted and chaos set in. His father who already could do too much drinking sometimes, tried to raise three boys on his own. The boys ran a little wild, and Kevin was among them. He didn't get into a lot of trouble. He got arrested for pot once. But mostly, he lacked a plan for the future. And as high school came to an end, that kind of came crashing down on him.
2: At the time, I thought it was the only option, because I definitely couldn't go to college because I barely graduated (laughs) high school. <laughs> I skateboarded to the recruiter's office. So one day after high school, that was like my primary means of transportation is a skateboard. And yeah, I just went over there. I had long hair. I think it was bleach blonde at the time. And I was like, hey, I want to sign up and join the Marines. I can't even imagine what the recruiter thought. But yeah, it was really is that that simple. I told him I wanted to be a Marine and I wanted to be a rifleman. And he's like, oh, we got uh, tons of job options. You know, you can do a lot of things in the Marines. I was like, no, no, no. I want to be a rifleman. (laughs) And he's like, all right, easy enough.
1: (laughs) The riflemen occupy a very special place in Marine life and lore. They are the grunts. They're trained in combat. It's not the kind of position that recruiters in Northern Virginia are used to handing out to middle-class kids. But in Kevin's case, it wasn't as if it were a cultivated, well-thought-out decision. Kevin already was in peak physical condition, and he wanted to test himself. And there's no better way to do that in the mind of an 18-year-old boy than proving yourself during a summer in Paris Island, South Carolina.
2: Bright lights and terror, that's where, you know, the classic scene of, like, getting your hair cut and being issued kind of your... Closed during the 13-week process of training, and you lose your name, you lose any kind of sense of who you are. And that's the idea is like, you're literally nothing to them. My dad told me that it's a game. And so I kind of kept that in the forefront of my mind.
1: Oddly enough, treating boot camp as if it were a game made things a little bit more serious for Kevin. He was able to endure the hazing and the physical requirements because he figured out the key to the game early. And it was this Don't be the slowest, but don't be the fastest. Don't do anything to distinguish yourself in any way. Keep your head down, shut your trap, do your job. Endure. Enduring is winning in boot camp, and Kevin had come to win. But boot camp is really kind of a thing into itself. And at the end of the day, Kevin really got it a little bit backwards. You see, the point of boot camp isn't to endure. The point of boot camp is to learn to endure.
2: (laughs) I think how short-sighted I was, the Marines to me meant making it through Paris Island, and I hadn't thought any further than that. And now that I made it out of boot camp, graduated... I was kind of bummed, like, oh, shit, this is four years of my life. Damn it. Like, I honestly hadn't thought any further than boot camp.
1: (laughs) The prospect of spending the next four years in the Marines really started weighing on Kevin. It sent him into something of a depression that really colored his next few months as a Marine. The training at Camp Lejeune, where he went to get his MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, was mostly war games. Games again. But this time they were games with no point. There was no graduation. And so Kevin didn't take them even as seriously as he took boot camp. Boot camp was hard. War games, war games were nothing.
2: I think when I was done at Lejeune, it still felt really far off. Everything felt like it was just still just these games and from Paris Island through Lejeune you know, they're just training you to be a Marine. I think it was heavy on my soul because it was such a focus on death and killing and training to, um, yeah, just be really good at that. And it was just a dark place, and that's where they want you to operate. It's just, you know, kind of removed and detached in a way.
1: But the Marines focus on learning to kill and learning to fight wasn't arbitrary. After all, not only was there a war on, but it could escalate. And if it did, that would mean troops. And that would mean real death. And the war games would be over. But unfortunately, there's no middle ground between war games and combat. They were doing the best they could to get everyone ready for what was coming.
2: I remember them telling us, that we should look around our unit because, um, you know, at least five Marines in our uh, unit would be killed in combat, that we were doing a build-up, that we would be sent over to either Afghanistan or Iraq, and that guaranteed they were going to have five of us killed. And everything we went through from, like, obstacle courses to rifle range— In the school, like, yeah, it was all framed through this lens of us going to combat. So I knew at the entire process that I was gonna probably be in Iraq or Afghanistan. I remember not believing them though. That was kind of the sense I had. I was young and ignorant to just geopolitical, you know, landscape, and I figured it was just part of the, uh, you know, scare tactics. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll go to war. Like, it wasn't on my radar.
1: (laughs) Kevin's big takeaway from boot camp and MOS was that there was always a second side to things. There was always an underlying game. They were always trying to trick you into being better than you thought you could be. It wasn't until he got to his duty station at 29 Palms, California, that the lessons started to coalesce. And even then took a little while for them to sink in. 29 Palms, California, isn't radically different from any other town that springs up around a military base. But out in the California desert, it also has those expansive views that are at once heartbreakingly beautiful and intimidatingly bleak. A not-so-subtle reminder about how much nothing there can be in a country that seems so full. But Kevin didn't find 29 Palms a welcoming place, and he didn't really fit in with his new group. He was one of five new marines who were stationed there. The other guys from 37 Lima had just returned from a tour in Iraq, and they were still a little tweaky. As a matter of fact, Kevin and the four other marines hadn't even been expected. When he showed up, he had to spend the whole day walking around. At the end of the day, there was one marine who said he could sleep on his floor if he wanted. That guy's name was Chris Wasser. Kevin eventually would be assigned to his fire team. And by the time they got to Kuwait, the two would remain close. But in the meantime, Kevin and the other Marines still had to earn their place in 37 Lima.
2: 0311, like rifleman and kind of the infantry unit in the Marine Corps is a wild bunch of Marines because um they Didn't get other jobs in the Marines. (laughs) So it was interesting because I said, I want to do this. And my recruiter was like, no, 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 there's other stuff you could do, you know. You're capable of many things. But I was adamant to do this. But it had this kind of feeling of like, you know, the grunts are the hellions. And just this wild, wild energy where I thought I was pretty wild growing up. Then I met this unit and— the uh yeah, they were just crazy. It was it was mayhem. They put us through the ringer. I remember drinking just a shit ton of beer, and then they you know would make us fight. It'd be like three in the morning, I'm pulled out of bed, and then myself and the other four Marines would be on the ground, and then the rest of the unit would be kind of surrounding us in a circle, and they would just make us fight. And it had a lot of this just... it felt really scrappy.
1: We all have those moments where we look around at our lives and wonder at the reality of them. Where we start coming to terms with the absurdity of ourselves as grown-ups. As a Marine, Kevin struggled with the war games because they just felt like play. They didn't feel real. 29 Palms wasn't much different. There were fewer rules, so there was more free-for-all But it still didn't feel real. It still felt like a game. As a matter of fact, the full import of his decision to join the United States Marine Corps wasn't really clear to Kevin until he was already inbound to Iraq. This Is War is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. The Marine Corps had a ton of jobs available to enlistees like Kevin, but he was adamant about becoming a rifleman. Kevin trained for months for both his job and to face the unique situations Marines face daily. Military veterans are trained to adapt to whatever obstacles or challenges arise. They learn from every situation, and they're trained to think well and perform under pressure. If these sound like the traits you'd look for in a great employee, you're right. While their training isn't exactly what you typically face in someone's first week at a new job, the character they develop through their training is exactly what most employers are looking for. And yet underemployment faces more veteran job seekers than non-veteran job seekers. Many find that when they return to civilian life, it could be a difficult transition. That's why ZipRecruiter is committed to ensuring all people, particularly those who face unique challenges when they're looking for work, have the opportunity to find meaningful employment. To help the veteran community, ZipRecruiter has partnered with companies to support veterans as they transition into civilian careers and even has a service called Veteran Post, which allows businesses to get their jobs additional exposure to the veteran community. So, if you're an employer looking for top-notch talent, ZipRecruiter is a place to find them. That's because ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what each employer is looking for, identifies the right people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. You can use ZipRecruiter to find great job candidates today. And now, listeners to this podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com thisiswar. That's ZipRecruiter.com thisiswar. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. With time and distance... The picture of his induction into Three Seven Lima is a lot more clear to Kevin than it was at the time. But then he felt steeped in the culture of violence for which he was totally unprepared. The challenge of boot camp, the monotony of camp Lejeune, and the build-up—all of these things were part of a larger preparation, and Kevin understood that at an intellectual level. Still, sitting around and doing nothing is a very particular kind of boredom when you're waiting to go to war. And that's exactly what Kevin was doing for his first three weeks in Kuwait. Waiting. If there was any upside at all, it was that he took the opportunity to coalesce as part of the group and become a full member of 37 Lima before they headed into Iraq.
2: I would set up canteens and different items around and make a drum set out of it. And I had a lot of fun. And I remember... While we were in Kuwait, they had a talent show for Marines, you know, because you're bored, you have all this time on our hands. so every one of the boots, the five of us, we had to perform for the other 75 Marines. So the other four Marines, they go in and they're singing one by one at the top of their lungs, their favorite song. And the Marines are either booing them or like cheering. And um, then I go out. And I bring my drumsticks and I start air drumming. (laughs) They didn't even know how to respond, which to me was a victory. (laughs) And I think from then on is when I maybe won over more Marines. Um, And that's when I got close to Chris Wasser, who had, you know, let me stay on his floor. And um, I think it's just that slowly building trust and trusting that. You know, this this guy who is in my unit with me, is he going to be there when shit hits the fan?
1: Days later, as they flew in low over the desert bound for Huseiba, they all would get to find out. The town of Huseiba may have been a lost cause right from the start. A key checkpoint on the Iraq-Syrian border, it had been something of a tinderbox since early 2003. Once the end of major combat was announced in May, things just got worse the insurgency was heating up all over Iraq, and attacks on both the Iraqi and coalition forces were increasing. At 29 Palms, the Marines had joked about how easy it was. They didn't have to wear flak jackets, and they got on really well with the locals. Although Kevin wasn't thrilled to hear that he was going into a low-risk combat situation, he took it all in stride. He'd never been to Iraq, after all, and he saw it as a kind of travel-the-world experience meet new and exotic people, experience foreign cultures and whatnot. The mission was simple enough. The new Iraqi army was still in need of training and the Marines were inbound to provide it.
2: Um, I remember we were flying in uh, on a helicopter and they've got a door gunner on each side, the left and the right and then a one on the back and we're flying in. It's like, you know, middle of the afternoon and one of the 50 cal gunner starts, you know, unloading. And I was so excited because the last tour, they didn't fire a single shot and it was totally safe. So I was thinking, cool, well, that's probably the closest I'll get to seeing and feeling anything, you know. But then we land and we do about a hour long hike on foot into the town of Huseba. We had only been there for about, I don't know, an hour. A explosion goes off. It was a IED that was buried too deep. So it just blew up the earth and... Um, It was almost like a slingshot. The Marine in front of me went flying into the air. You could hear AK-47 rounds. Um, They felt they weren't directed at me. Um, You could hear them kind of happening around the corner. There's just all these noises, and I couldn't really figure out who they were coming from or where they were going. Um, Yeah, everything just kind of clicked and made sense, like, oh— This situation, this is war, this is combat, and I know how to respond. Same with my unit, same with everyone to my left and my right, we knew what to do.
1: Training and killing, and living with death, depressing as he had found it at the time, and as he still finds it now, was the best the Marines could provide for living in the war zone that was day-to-day Huseiba. Kevin had spent his last six months fighting boredom and depression. Now he was fighting an enemy that he couldn't positively identify. Far from barely being in combat, they were in combat daily, sometimes several times a day. They started to call the time before dinner Mortar 30 because that's when the rocket attacks would begin. There would be quick blasts and then silence. The Marines were doing their job, though. They were patrolling, they were helping guard the border, and they were training their fellow soldiers from Iraq. And this might be where Kevin's misgivings about all the training start to make a little bit of sense. You see, they were trained to kill, and they were trained to fight. But where their training really couldn't compensate was once Marines started dying, and there was nothing they could do about it.
2: Uh, Yeah, we had... Um, I remember four Marines killed pretty early on, I think it was from an IED, and we were doing a lot of foot patrols, so everything was on foot, and they would trigger the explosion with a cell phone, so they would pack C4 with razor blades and um, marbles and anything sharp, and they might put it in a trash can, and it's really not detectable. So you'd be on a foot patrol, walking, you know, down any any road, and then maybe two blocks away, they could just call it in on a cell phone and trigger it. Um, so we lost pretty early on four marines, and I remember we had a funeral for him. So we had these sandbags, and then we put a rifle in the sandbag, and then we had these, um, someone's boots, and took all maybe 15 minutes to kind of have a ceremony. And we had someone say a prayer, then we would all walk by one at a time and kind of put our hands on the helmet. Um, and then we were back on a foot patrol, and it just felt very, I don't know, like we didn't spend any time processing it. We just kept going.
1: Impotence can turn pretty quickly into anger. Their enemy was mostly unseen, hiding among the innocents or traveling from region to region, orchestrating IED attacks. The only people the Marines could see were the people that they were responsible for checking in and out across the border. As Marines died, they increased security and scrutiny, but also took retaliatory measures. The tit-for-tat only got worse after some military contractors were killed in Fallujah and their mutilated bodies hung from a bridge.
2: We would take a goat and slaughter it and bring it to their cemetery, which was, I guess, you know, unacceptable. Like, little things like that, that would offend their culture that we would do. Then they would, you know, another IED. And I remember we'd be on a foot patrol, and our sergeant would be, you know, like urinating— on the people's house, you know, and then it eventually just reached this point where we had to put up a curfew. If anyone from Syria was in Iraq selling goods and they didn't make it back into Syria, um, they would just be forced to wait overnight in Iraq. And the same with Iraqis that went into Syria to sell goods. But the curfew caused a mile-long buildup on each side of cars, and they'd just be, you know, waiting the next day, they would come back to their cars. And I remember one night, our corporal um, was like, we're going to hotwire these cars, and we are going to move them. And when they come back the next day, they'll have no clue where their car is. And it could be in the Euphrates, or it could be, you know, on the other side of town. And it was absurd. You know, looking back, it's all so fucking absurd. And it was pointless. And I think about if this were to happen here in the U.S., and I had a family and some— unit with tanks and helicopters and all this heavy artillery came rolling in here and started pissing on our doorway and, you know, killing animals and bringing to our cemetery and, uh, you know, killing my friends and family, I would, would probably respond the same way.
1: Let's try and put this in context. These Marines all are in their early 20s or late teens. They're away from home, and their friends are dying. Now, the Marines had prepared them on how to defend themselves. The Marines had prepared them to endure almost every physical challenge, and many psychological ones. But what the Marines were facing here in Huseba, as well as elsewhere, was something wholly different. Kevin had the kind of muscle memory responses that made him reliable under fire, The Marines had given him that training, but the Marines didn't prepare him for the carnage he would face daily in Iraq. How could they? Training had helped prepare his body, but there's little that could have been done to prepare his soul. Messing with the locals and pulling pranks on the convoys haunted Kevin, but watching his unit take casualties and attending impromptu funerals, that haunted him more. There was this pervasive sense of mutual hate that he was just having trouble shaking. He tried to preserve his humanity as best he could, but it was just one more difficult fight in the desert.
2: Yeah, we lost, uh, I think, 26 Marines, and this was a really small group of us out there. I remember we were losing, every one of our translators were murdered, so we were 18 19 20 year olds on the border of Syria trying to stop you know weapons coming in but also we are kind of charged with being ambassadors of the US except i wasn't equipped to do that you know the marines didn't teach me anything about you know actually um, shaping the hearts and minds it was just how to fight and how to kill. Looking back, we only had probably one translator at a time, and every single one of them was murdered because they were cooperating with the U.S.
1: Looking forward and backward at once is a difficult place to be, kind of like trying to make peace and war at the same time. But that's precisely where Kevin found himself during his last few days in Huseba, trying to make peace and trying to
2: make war. Like I remember, the my family shipped me Tootsie Rolls, and they made them. They made it out there, and I had these Tootsie Rolls, and I thought I'm gonna hand these out to the local kids. And um, I had the bag, and we're on a patrol, and I'm handing them out because it just felt right. I felt like I wanted to do that, and I remember a staff sergeant came up and knocked them out of my hands and said, "We're we're at fucking war here." We're not handing out Tootsie Rolls, and he gave me a, you know, a firm chewing. And then just just that kind of recognizing that I tried the best I could to operate from a place of love, even when I was forced to be in a place of death.
1: In fact, that's precisely what he was doing on
2: his last day in Iraq.
1: Having the whole day in front of you takes on a completely different meaning in a war zone. You can't act as if it's your last day on Earth, but you also can't walk around with the same kind of unstated sense of immortality that those of us who aren't facing daily combat take for granted. Still, Kevin had started April 7th with a sense of purpose. To the south, the siege of Fallujah had just begun in earnest, but in Huseba... 3-7 Lima was undertaking a Hearts and Minds mission.
2: I remember feeling pretty good, just regular sunny day. Um, we were tasked with going down Main Street, and I forget what, the, what we were promoting, but we had these flyers. It was something about how we wanted to start new relations and kind of start anew. And as we're handing them out, an IED explodes, Uh, shrapnel goes through my captain's. uh, He gets like a piece of wood lodged in his neck and some shrapnel hits another Marine. So I remember that we're kind of split in half, the front of the uh, unit and the back. And I'm in the back and we're forced to kind of go around this IED and uh, we're going to meet up with the front half of the Marine unit. And we're walking by... Uh, a graveyard. Um, As I'm looking backwards, I can see our captain with this giant piece of wood stuck into his neck. (laughs) But They didn't want to take it out because then he'd start bleeding. (laughs) So he's just running back to the base with the dock with a huge piece of wood in his neck. Um, And I was amused by that, and I remember then turning around to face forward with the rest of the unit, and that's when the explosion went off, and um, I blacked out for a second, and I remember this uh, feeling like I was drowning. So I'm just gasping for air, trying um, to—yeah, just trying to breathe. It was terrifying.
1: The concussion from the second IED had knocked Kevin flat on his back and driven all of the air from his lungs, but he was equally incapacitated by the pain and the shock. After all, they had just suffered a near miss. It wasn't uncommon. An IED goes off and there are no, or sometimes minor, injuries. And while I'm pretty sure the captain wouldn't have described it as a minor injury, it wasn't as if everyone was dying, but then... All of a sudden, it was like everybody was.
2: It ripped through Chris Wasser's body, um, blew off half of his head. He took the brunt of it, and then the shrapnel that went through him then went and hit me and another Marine, Vega, who lost um, fingers and toes. The Shrapnel went to my eye, went to both knees. It blew out my right knee. It blew out um, my right bicep. It um, went through my left eye. Um, it blew up in my left thigh. So it kind of like a um, the best way is a hot dog. <laughs> if you put a hot dog in the microwave and then you know how it gets expanded. And then if you just cut a little line through the middle, that's what my left thigh looked like. So I could see my femur all the way down um, and shrapnel through my right hand and pinky. So it was just a bloody mess. And I remember the doc came over and he started working on Chris. And then um, I was kind of in and out of consciousness. Pretty sure I was going to die. Pretty sure that was, this is the end. This is where my life ends here on, you know, the sands of Huseba. Um, I remember hearing screaming and crying because Vega, the other Marine, which was a good sign to me. I remember like, okay, he's all right. And I remember trying to say something to Chris Wasser in front of me and I felt like he was responding, um, which he wasn't. He was, um, pretty close to death, if not dead. Um, and so then the doc came over to me, and I remember him shooting me up with morphine. I remember they medevaced us on a helicopter, and Chris was next to me, but I didn't, it didn't register that he was already dead. So when my sergeant and corporals are saying, hey, hey, you know, Kevin, calm down, stop talking... They didn't want to tell me that Chris had already passed. So here I am just like, you know, stitched up with uh, all these field dressings. And they load me on the chopper and I, I can just see myself like shouting to Chris, thinking I'm having a conversation because I'm so high. And, you know. Less than a year from the day he skateboarded
1: into the recruiter's office to become a rifleman, Kevin Rumley was packed up into a helicopter with his dead friend and shipped back home. The Marines notified John Rumley that Kevin had been wounded in action and that his legs and face were injured in an explosion, but nothing else. It would take several days for the details of his injury to be made clear and another few weeks before the father could see his son for himself. In the blur that would be the ensuing months, No one ever corrected Kevin's misapprehension about Chris. He learned about his friend's death from another Marine, about three months after the explosion. There were probably a couple of reasons that Kevin didn't hear about it beforehand. The first was he had his own injuries to tend to. The second was that he was in the early wave of what would become a flood of casualties as soldiers were coming in from the First Battle of Fallujah and the April 17th Battle of Huseba. From his bed, though, Kevin had his own war to fight. The doctor said he would never walk again, and he was so frequently and adamantly asking for pain meds that even his father stepped in and asked the nurses to pump the brakes a bit. Still, even though he eventually walked out of the hospital under his own power and against the odds, he carried with him an addiction. Yes, the drugs kept the pain at bay. Made his legs feel better, and his arms, and his eyes but also his mind. And that was where he needed the most help to begin with.
2: I had really bad PTSD for uh, the first probably two years. And unfortunately, I was discharged from Walter Reed and I had a pretty healthy opioid addiction. And so, I mean, prior to joining the Marines, I was drinking a lot, and it's totally acceptable in the Marines to drink a lot. And then I was injured, and I'm introduced to you know, this new level of euphoria, and I have all of this kind of just psychological pain that's festering, and opioids really relieved me of a lot of that. And my transition back into just civilian society was really hard because I didn't know who I was, what I was supposed to be. Um, So much of my trajectory felt like it was going to the Marines. And then, then, then I'm blown up and injured and I don't know who or what I am anymore, but I had opioids. I remember my Neighbor came over one time and her father had just passed away, he had cancer. And so he had hospice in home and she had all of these meds, just a bag full of fentanyl and dilated fentanyl, lollipops, and oxycotton. And she came up and was like, Hey, I know um, you have all these, you know, you've been at Walter Reed for two years. And I just wondered if I could donate these uh, meds to you. Could you get them to the veterans, which is so sweet of her. And I just took that, promised her I would, and just every single thing in that I just consumed, you know, in a week. And my tolerance was astronomical. And at the time, it just felt kind of like I wanted a slow death, like a suicide, but I didn't have the courage to do it.
1: It's funny that he said courage. Courage isn't necessarily action. A lot of times, courage is endurance. And Kevin had endured so far, and he would have to continue enduring, as if compelled. Because after all of the games, he'd finally learned that endurance isn't a goal. Endurance is a process. And more than anything... Kevin had to endure isolation. Feeling apart, even from his family and friends, was as much a function of his psychological attachment to the war as it was his addiction. And both, the war and the addiction, were with him every day. When he went to college, when he went to the grocery store, when he engaged in day to day interpersonal conflicts, Kevin felt isolated because he couldn't find a way to connect his inner experience, his pain, horror, and anger, with the people around him who just hadn't seen what he had seen.
2: I have a handicap placard, and it's pretty awesome. I try not to take too much advantage of it. But yeah, so I have this handicap placard, and I have gotten yelled at before by you know people in these big-ass trucks that pull up hey can't you read it's a handicapped motherfucker you know and I don't respond I don't engage but it's this where my outward presentation doesn't it's not congruent to how I feel on the inside I found that I and I still feel this way but that I wished I had my legs amputated or I wish that I was missing an arm or I wish that I was missing my eye or my hand that was blown off because I worked so hard in my rehab and I am now able to successfully walk and hide my scars behind pants and you wouldn't be able to tell that I have these injuries. And I often wished that I did have those because I felt like they would, people would automatically understand, and maybe just approach me differently if my outward presentation somehow reflected kind of this this inner experience that was happening.
1: For years, even after he had beaten his addiction, Kevin struggled with his time in the military. He struggled against returning. He struggled against becoming a part of veterans' groups. He wanted to do good, but he wanted to do it outward-facing instead of looking back. But it was during his drug treatment that he made his first connections with the VA. And then, after spending years trying to find his place in the counseling world, he finally returned to veteran services. And he was lucky. His bottom wasn't as far down as it is for many vets, and he did find his way back up. Today, Kevin works in the veterans' court, helping addicted vets trade in prison sentences for a treatment and recovery program. In the end, Kevin's experience still somehow defied reality. It started out as a series of misunderstandings and games. Boot camp was not the Marines, nor were the war games or the late-night fighting and drinking It wasn't the reciprocal harassment at the border checkpoints or the death or the carnage. Like being in the service generally, and in combat specifically, the Marines is something that only can be really understood between people who have served together, and who have come through, and who help one another push on. The name of the game, after all, is Endurance. next time on this is war this is actually the first time where i saw a lot of people dead in my immediate area you know they're just bringing back the the people from the bazaar to our aid station so that was that was a really that was really transformative moment subscribe on apple podcasts stitcher spotify or wherever you're listening right now to find a link to subscribe to This Is War, show notes, and more information, simply tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see offers from our sponsors. Please help support our shows by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you would give us a 5-star rating and review. And be sure to tell your friends and show them how to subscribe. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. Are you a combat veteran, or do you know one with a story to tell? Reach out to us at stories at thisiswar.com with your dates and branch of service and a brief description of the experience you'd like to share. If you would like to hear more of This Is War and other Wondery shows, in addition to extra content, early access, and exclusive perks, you can subscribe at Wondery Plus. Go to wondery.com slash plus. I'm Anthony Russo. This is War was produced by Incongruity Media. Executive
0: producer Hernan Lopez for Wondery.